Well, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 5 in your copy of God's Word this morning. Luke chapter 5, we'll be looking at the very uh, end of that chapter as we continue to study through Luke's Gospel. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that uh, Dr. Luke and his Gospel uh, begins by firmly establishing the authority of Jesus, uh, the authority of Jesus over nature, over the demonic realm, the authority of Jesus to call people to follow him. And we've seen that very call extended in chapter 5, where he has called Peter, James, and John, the fishermen, to follow him. And last Lord's Day, we looked at how uh, he then turns and calls Levi, a tax collector, who we also know as Matthew, to follow him. And then when he does that, Levi throws a party. He throws a feast for Jesus, and he invites all of his friends, who at this point in his life are other tax collectors and sinners. And so when they gather together with Jesus, uh, they are a number of people who look at that and, and frown on it, specifically uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who at this point in Luke's gospel are uh, investigating Jesus. They're, they're seeing him do things that they don't approve of, and they're uh, really trying to, to catch him in doing something wrong. And so uh, last Lord's Day, we saw how they, they asked him this question about uh, why he and his disciples spent time with these sinners. And Jesus made an interesting statement to them. He, he talked about how uh, doctors come for the sick, not for the healthy. And in saying that, Jesus was not saying that the Pharisees were healthy. <laughs> uh, he was saying they didn't realize they were sick, that they were sinners. And we'll continue to see that's clear in today's passage as now the Pharisees continue to inquire of Jesus, continue to try to point out something he's doing that they don't approve of. And it comes down to a question about fasting. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 5, verse 39. And uh, if you're able, out of reverence for God's word, I want to invite you again once to stand. Uh, this is indeed the holy word of God that has been handed down to us. And so we stand out of reverence. And this is what God's word says. They said to him, to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it in an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put in fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. You would pray with me. Father, I, I pray that you would help us to see in this passage that the old is not good. We need the new. We, we need to be made new creations with new hearts. We need to come under the new covenant of the blood of Jesus, the very covenant we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table together. Lord, help us to discern and to see what our Lord Jesus is speaking of here as he talks of the new and the old. And Lord, I pray that you would expose within our hearts today whether we are trusting in the old 
in our works, in our flesh, in our deeds, or we're trusting in the new, in Christ and his blood. Help us to see this clearly now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When 1837, the third installment of Hans Christian Andersen's Fairy Tales Told to Children was published, and it contained what would become one of his most famous stories, entitled The Emperor's New Clothes. Now, if you know the story, the fairy tale, you know that it's about a, a vain emperor who always wants to wear the latest fashions, and uh, he is essentially duped by these two swindlers who come pretending to be weavers, and they promise to make the most extravagant, the most glorious, the most majestic clothes that anyone has ever seen. Uh, the caveat is only the most refined people can see them. And so if you don't see these clothes that they make, well, that means that you are ignorant and you are unrefined, but you can see them if you are refined and, and well-to-do and intelligent. Well, of course, there, there are no clothes, but they, they spin this tale and they convince the emperor to the extent that he believes he's wearing these clothes. He can't see them, but he doesn't want to admit that. And so he has a parade and he marches through town and, and others go along with the charade. Now, they pretend that they can see these majestic, glorious coverings when in reality, there's nothing to be seen, and that becomes obvious when a young boy in the crowd points out and exclaims, the emperor has no clothes. Well, as we come to Luke chapter 5, we are reminded of another group of people who, who thought they could cover themselves and clothe themselves. In this case, it was the Pharisees, and what they sought to cover themselves was their own righteousness. They weren't trusting in a righteousness that came from God. Even though they might have said that, what they were truly trusting in was their own works, their own deeds, the, the old covenant, the Mosaic law, along with a lot of other laws they had made up themselves. And they thought by adhering to these things that they were covered, that they were righteous, when really it was a self-righteousness, and that is exposed in this passage, and not by a young boy in the crowd, but by our Lord Jesus. Because that's what Christ does. That's what he does for us today. He exposes our hearts. He makes clear whether we're truly trusting in the righteousness that comes from God or we're trusting in ourselves for our salvation. And my prayer is that that exposure would be clear to all of us as we walk through this text this Lord's day. And so we'll begin with the first point you see there in your outline, that reminder, point one, that Jesus indeed exposes our self-righteousness. He exposes our self-righteousness. So remember again that the context here, there, there is a celebration at the house of Levi. The, the Pharisees have come and they are inquiring of the disciples of Jesus and of Jesus. Uh, why does he spend time with these sinners? Christ has pointed out that they indeed are sinners. They just don't see that. But rather than being exposed and responding to that exposure, they just kind of dig in deeper. And now it's about a question regarding behavior and fasting at this celebration that's taking place. Notice again, verse 33. 
they said to him, these are the, the Pharisees, we know from the other gospel accounts, uh, these also, that they includes the disciples of John the Baptist, who at this point, John the Baptist has been in prison for his faith. Uh, John the Baptist was the, the last prophet of, of the Old Covenant, and so his disciples are very much in step with those Old Covenant practices, and so they align themselves now with the Pharisees, and, and they too are making this inquiry, which involves them. They said, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And remember, they're, they're, they're at a celebration. They literally see the, the disciples of Jesus and Jesus eating and drinking with these sinners, and this was of great offense to them, not only because they were with sinners, but because they were eating and drinking. Now, now, what's the issue there? Well, to understand that, you have to understand a few things about the issue of fasting. And we can find, as we look through the Old Testament, there's only actually one fast called for in the Old Testament. And we find it in Leviticus 23, and that was a fast that was called for on the Day of Atonement. So there was one time, once a year, that God called his people to fast. Fasting would be a period of time they would go without food. And this was so that they might seek God and pursue God and trust in God. Often then, fasting would become a time of lament. It would be during a time of mourning for God's people. And, and that's how we see it then carry on. Even though it's only called for on the Day of Atonement, we see several other times people re they responded to God and they fasted in the Old Testament. We see, for example, Israel fasted when they were at war with the Philistines in 1 Samuel 7. We saw in 2 Samuel that David fasted when his son was dying. And we see Esther fast before seeing the king. Fasting in the Old Testament was usually associated with, with grief and affliction. It was a time of humility for God's people to seek God. But now we come to the New Testament and we see that the Pharisees have taken this once a year command and this uh, consistent practice among some and they've, they've kind of twisted it and added to it. You'll remember we talked about this before, how the Pharisees, during those 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the Gospels, they, they added to the law and all types of stipulations of the law and their interpretations of the law, which they said then were the law themselves. And some of these had to do with fasting. And so they went from the call to fast once a year, and they interpreted that by their own law to mean you need to fast much more often. You need to make sure people see you fasting. And so they practiced fasting twice a week. And specifically, they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays, which coincidentally were the days of markets among the Jewish people. This meant this was the time that the Jewish people would be outdoors gathered at the market. This was the time that the Pharisees would be the most visible. <laughs> This would be the time that others were out there buying provisions, buying goods, and they would make sure they knew that they, the Pharisees, were more righteous because they were fasting. In fact, what they would often do would be to alter their appearance so that people might see that they were fasting, because otherwise, how would they know? I mean, I can't look at you this morning and tell whether you're hungry or not. Now, the second service, I can usually tell about 12 o'clock. <laughs> But you can't look at me and know, I can't look at you and know. And so the Pharisees would make sure people knew. 
That's why Jesus points these very things out about them. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. He's speaking here of the Pharisees. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. And they would actually powder their faces. They would alter their appearance. They would wear old and worn out clothes. They wanted to make sure others saw they were fasting. And they would do this twice a week. And they took great pride in it. This is why we see, for example, the Pharisee in Jesus' parable later in Luke's gospel say, I fast twice a week. And so we don't know, but chances are this feast that's taking place is really probably closely aligned to one of these fasts. And they're noticing, either at that feast or at other times, that the disciples of Jesus aren't practicing this twice-a-week fasting that they were doing. And Jesus uses this opportunity to expose that they had completely taken the spiritual discipline of fasting and they had altered it, manipulated it, and turned it into something radically different than God ever intended. Hey, he's not saying here that fasting is wrong. In fact, we see in the Gospels, he doesn't say if you fast, he says when you fast. But what they had done with it is they had manipulated it into self-righteousness. They had weaved and spun their own righteousness, you might say. They, they wanted to display it to others that they might see how righteous they were. They were trusting then in this practice for their righteousness rather than trusting in God for righteousness. And friends, if we're not careful, we can do the very same thing. And there's all types of ways we can make ourselves look more religious, more spiritual. We know the lingo. We know the words to say. We know the things to do. We, we know how to present ourselves in such a way that we might look good to others. In fact, it seems we are somewhat consumed with this practice in our lives. For whatever reason, we, we want to give a better appearance of ourselves to others. And so maybe this morning you are struggling. Maybe you are anxious and overwhelmed. Maybe there is so much going on in your life. You, you did good just to walk in these doors this morning and lift your voices and sing and smile to one another and shake hands. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm great. But 10 minutes ago in the car, that's not what it was. Maybe 30 minutes ago, trying to get outside of that house, it wasn't that. You're yelling at the kids, and they're yelling at you, and you're yelling at people on the way to church. But something about walking in this building, we, we kind of put on that different appearance at times, don't we? we? We try to dress it up. But Jesus has a way of exposing that and really cutting to the core to show what's really going on there. And what he's doing here with the Pharisees is he, he's exposing. He's saying, you, you're not covered in the way you think you are. And he's offering them the opportunity then to, to trust in him, to trust in his righteousness, to be completely covered with clothing of righteousness and glory and majesty. And if they will indeed do this, then they will understand the hope and the joy that his disciples have and that they're celebrating. 
That brings us to the second point there in your outline. We see here that Jesus offers us real hope and joy. And so this accusation has been made. Why, why don't you do what we do? Why don't you fast like we do? And notice how Jesus responds. He, he poses a question to them in response to their accusation. Verse 35, he says this, or asks this. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now again, remember the context here. It's not a wedding feast, but it's a celebration. And, and Jesus is using the celebration he's a part of to point towards a greater celebration that the Pharisees would understand, because weddings were celebrations. And we talked about this in the beginning of our study of Luke's gospel as I was explaining betrothal and this process and what Mary and Joseph were going through and, and got us up to that point of, of what it looked like and then the wedding. But then after the wedding and during the wedding, there was a long celebration. And so for us today, you know, there's a wedding at two and there's a, a reception at three and we're probably home by five, but that wasn't the case in Jesus' day. The wedding celebration went on for days, up to a week, sometimes even longer. It was a celebration. It was a feast. Some of you parents right now are thinking, I'm really thankful it's not like that today because you won't believe what I spent on those two hours. But, but this was communal. This was the people coming together. This was a, a great celebration. And, and the law at that time among the rabbis was that during this celebration, you, you held off on fasting. You, you weren't even allowed as a rabbi, a religious leader, to fast during the wedding feast because this was a time for celebration. And the Pharisees understood this. And so the Pharisees weren't fasting on those two days during that week. They were jumping in and they were celebrating along with everybody else. And so Jesus uses this example to help them to see what is truly taking place among him and his disciples. He's saying, listen, there's a celebration. And the reason to celebrate is because the bridegroom is here. Now that, that terminology is familiar to us. We, we see that come up through the New Testament. We see it particularly in the book of Revelation. We see this wedding feast of the Lamb. We see this, this picture of this great banquet table. We see that Jesus, indeed, our Messiah, he is the bridegroom, and we, the church, are his bride. When we come to this table, we, we get a, a foretaste that points us towards that. Now, this feast will leave you wanting for more. <laughs> a little itty-bitty piece of bread and a little thimble of juice. That, that's not a feast, but it's pointing us towards a greater feast. And it's reminding us of a feast that once took place. And we live in the already and the not yet, in between those two feasts, pointing us forward. And Jesus' day, what, he, what he's saying here is that the bridegroom has come. We're, we're familiar with that language. They weren't. You don't see the Messiah spoken of as the bridegroom in the Old Testament. We're, we're seeing it introduced here, but it's a point that should have been clear to the Pharisees. 
They're saying the long way to Messiah is before you. The, the, the one that you've been longing for and looking for is right here. And that's why my disciples aren't gloomy like you, aren't covering their face and their appearance like you, aren't fasting like you, because it's time to celebrate. You don't fast during the wedding celebration. You feast. And so here's Jesus, the Messiah, standing in front of these religious leaders who had been looking for and longing for the Messiah, and they completely are missing it. God in flesh is right in front of them, and they don't see him. They miss Jesus entirely. And friends, if we're not careful, we'll, we'll do the same thing. We'll come and sing and we'll worship and we'll pray and we'll fast and we'll do all these things, but it is entirely possible to do all that and to completely miss Jesus. I was listening to an interview this summer with Wayne Gretzky. Many of you probably know that name, even if you're not fans of ice hockey, because Wayne Gretzky is one of the, the greatest living ice hockey players to, to ever play hockey. And in this interview, it was rather humorous because he was telling a story about he and his uh, teenage son at the time. They were uh, traveling and they had come to a certain city. I don't remember where it was, but, but this city uh, was having a hockey celebration. It was uh, during a cold time of the year. And so they actually had put out in the, the community, out in the parks, they had ice hockey rinks and there were ice hockey games going on. And so Wayne Gretzky and his son thought this is great. And so they went to watch some of these folks play hockey. And in the story, he talks about how they kind of made their way there. And they, they stood there and they're watching the match. And and he looks around, he notices that there's, you know, people all around him wearing hockey jerseys and on the back, Gretzky. <laughs> These are jerseys with his name. He's one of the greatest hockey players ever. They're watching this hockey match, but nobody knows who he is. And in fact, one of the individuals was standing right there beside him, kind of nudged up against him. And he talked about how he, he initiated with this guy three or four times talking to him, you know. You like hockey? Well, I played some hockey myself. These guys are good, but you know, professional hockey players, uh, that's tough, isn't it? Oh, you like Wayne Gretzky? Yeah. And the guy was annoyed by them. <laughs> Completely disregarded him. And so as he and his son are leaving, his son turns to him and says, Dad, why, why didn't you tell that guy who you were? And he said, I gave him three or four chances. Here this guy was wearing a Wayne Gretzky jersey, probably has tributes to Gretzky all over his home, watching a hockey match beside the great Wayne Gretzky, and he didn't even know who he was. He missed him. Here's the Pharisee who had spent their whole lives in religious devotion, who not only committed themselves to follow the Mosaic covenant and law, but had actually added to it quite a bit and prided themselves on how much they adhered to it. In fact, they looked down on others who weren't. That's the context here. 
Here are the people of Jesus' day who, if anyone would have been looking for the Messiah, you would think it would be the Pharisees. you think they would recognize him, and yet they completely missed him. And in missing him, they missed the hope and the joy that he offered. Friends, don't miss that here. Jesus is saying, you, you, you celebrate when you have the Messiah. You, you have joy when you have the Messiah. That, that's what our faith offers and promises us today. When we can have joy in our salvation, when we celebrate the gospel of Jesus, not in some artificial way, not in some cheap, turn that frown upside down, you know, but, but a true, authentic hope and joy that only Christ offers us. So that at our lowest moments, during our hardest seasons of life, when it literally feels like the ground is opening up underneath us, we can have hope and we can have joy if we truly have the Messiah and are clothed in His righteousness. I'll tell you a great picture of this. You can go there later and look at it yourselves. Lamentations chapter 3. There's a wonderful picture of what it looks like to have hope in the midst of suffering. In fact, the writer of Lamentations, who we believe is Jeremiah, starts off this chapter basically talking about the hardest time in life where he literally feels like God is a bear hiding around the corner waiting to devour him. And that's real, folks. I'm just going to assume this morning when you came into church and you put on that smile and someone said, how are you doing, that you didn't respond by saying, well, you know, I feel like God's a bear and he wants to rip me apart. How are you doing today? Now, that's raw. But if we're honest with ourselves, we have likely felt that very thing at times. When our child doesn't get better, when our loved one suffers, when we get that phone call that, that changes everything. And, and it doesn't seem to come just that once. It seems like tragedy and suffering is followed by tragedy and suffering and tragedy and suffering. And, and it's not proportional. When we're not all promised the same amount. And for some, it just seems like it's weight after weight after weight. And we, if we're honest, feel like God, are you against me? That's what the writer of Lamentations is saying in Lamentations 3. He's describing the emotion of feeling like all hope is lost, but then his suffering and grief and honesty turns him to a trust in the Lord that despite his circumstances, he trusts in the truth. That God is not against him, he is for him. And that's why he writes what is likely a familiar verse to us all in verse 21. After describing this lament and this suffering 
and this raw reality of how he feels, he says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in The Pharisees weren't hoping in the Lord. That they were hoping that their covering of self-righteousness was enough and was sufficient. But it wasn't. They had no covering. They had no righteousness. We only have righteousness through Christ and Christ alone. And when we know what that means, friends, we have hope. Do you have that hope today? Because then that hope, it, it produces a joy. Again, not, not a fakeness, a real, authentic joy. And friends, I'll tell you, the world takes note of that, just like the Pharisees here. They, they see something is different about the followers of Jesus. The world today notices there is something different about us. When we suffer and when we face grief, if our hope is truly in Jesus. And friends, they need that hope. They need that joy. And God gives us great opportunity to share that with them, that they might come to understand the reality that we have come to understand. Which is the third and final point there in your outline. The reality that Jesus makes all things new. <laughs> and that's the point here now of these parables. Jesus has responded to an accusation from these Pharisees with a question to point them towards the reality that they're obviously missing is the bridegroom has come. And that's why there's reason to celebrate. There'll, there'll be a time when he's gone. I think Jesus specifically here is likely speaking of the time between his death and his resurrection. And he's saying there, there's going to be longing and fasting and sorrow and grief, but, but a new day will come. On the third day, the tomb would be empty. Christ would conquer sin and death. There would be great celebration that would come again. We long for and look towards the day when all that comes together. And there's a great celebration in a new heaven and a new earth where Jesus says, I make all things new. And between this day and that, and then we get to experience this newness if our trust is truly in Jesus. And what Jesus points out in these parables is what that means. And so again, he talks here about a couple of different things. He talks about garments. He says, listen, you can't stitch up or piecemeal together an old garment by cutting out a piece of the new garment. So this is a new sweater. I've got some old sweaters. I've even got some sweaters that have started to have holes in them. Usually those mysteriously disappear on laundry day, but I've got a few of those. In fact, I've got a sweatshirt that I saw the other day. It's gray. It's got a hole kind of right here. So I could go home today and say, well, you know, it's got a hole in it. And 
and this sweater's new. I'm, I'm just going to cut out a piece of this new sweater, and I'm going to patch up that old sweatshirt. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. One, I can't sew. But even if I could, that sweatshirt would look ridiculous because it, it wouldn't match. Even if you had something the same color that the new and the old look different, especially in Jesus' day, the, the old is worn, the old is discolored. It's not going to match. And then I'm going to come up one Sunday and have a sweater on that's new, except for this big old patch that I cut out of it. Well, that's not going to work either. So Jesus is saying, well, you completely messed up the old and the new if that's your way of doing things. And then he tells another story, another illustration in his parable about wine and wineskins. Now, again, there's a context here different than what we experience today. I'm not promoting alcohol. But if you drink wine, you go to the store and get your bottle or your box. In Jesus' day, it was different. There was wine skins, which were actually the, the skins of animals. And I won't go into too much detail here, but they would take these animal skins, they would fill them with wine. Over time, that, that wine would go through a process through which those skins would stretch out and it would ferment. That was the, the practice then. And, and everyone understood, you, you don't dump the wine out of those wine skins and then put new wine right back in it because then when it starts to go through that process again, the skins will burst. And so Jesus here is saying, well, you, you don't mix the new with the old. The new with the old, this doesn't work. You don't have to understand sowing or wine fermentation to understand what Jesus is saying. here. The new and the old, you can't piecemeal together. The Pharisees were living under an old covenant of the Mosaic laws which they felt brought them a righteousness based on their works. Jesus radically changes everything. And he promises a new covenant based on his blood and his blood alone. And in teaching about the new, he exposes the deficiencies of the old. And helps the people to see they could never clothe themselves in their own righteousness any more than that emperor could wear make-believe clothes. Everyone who was honest would say the emperor has no clothes. And Jesus is saying if we're honest with ourselves today, and if our attempts at righteousness are through works and deeds, then we will recognize how desperately insufficient that is. And so if your understanding of the gospel is a false one, which has led you to believe that somehow you're going to stand before God and there's going to be some set of scales and as long as your good outweighs your bad, you'll be okay. Friends, you won't be okay. First of all, your good will never outweigh your bad, no matter how good you think you are. The scripture exposes how bad our bad really is. That even if we never act on it, it's there. And that's why we read, there is none righteous, no, not one. Jesus doesn't say to the Pharisees who approach him and say, why aren't your disciples fasting? Well, you know they don't need to, but you're doing a great job, keep it up. 
Now he exposes how desperately insufficient their works were. In fact, later, you remember what he says? Is your whitewashed tombs. You, you can clean up the outside of the grave all you want, but on the inside, there is something rotten in there. And the good news of the gospel is Jesus promises to make that new. And he says, we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the righteousness, the holiness, the glory of God. We, we can't sow that. We can't put that on. We can't come up with that on our own. And the wages of that is death. We deserve the wrath of God for our sins. But the good news of the gospel is that God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he offers to clothe us all friends with the most majestic and the most glorious covering we could ever put on. The blood of Jesus. And that blood cleanses us. And that blood brings us forgiveness, true, authentic, genuine forgiveness. It, it cleans us. It makes us brand new. And Jesus says to have this hope and this joy and this newness, it comes by putting our trust and our hope in him, in the new. We, we can't piecemeal it together. And yet, for whatever reason, as the Pharisees were trying to do this, we're still trying to do this today. And so people will hear the good news of the gospel, but they'll still trust in themselves and think, well, I just need to sprinkle a little Jesus every once in a while over here. And you see it all the time. Politicians want to get elected? Let me sprinkle some Jesus in my message. That'll get the votes. And it does. Marriage is struggling. Uh, maybe I'll go to church. Maybe I'll sprinkle a little Jesus in there. Maybe if we read the Bible or a marriage book or, or do this marriage devotion, that'll make it all better. But we see it all the time. The bottom falls out. The crisis hits. Well, let me just sprinkle a little Jesus in there. And then if things do get better, what do we do? We go right back to trusting in ourselves and our flesh and our own works. It doesn't work that way. You can't just sew a piece of the new into the old. You got to throw away the old. You got to get rid of it. Now here Jesus isn't saying this abolishes the Old Testament or there's nothing good about the Mosaic Law. What he's saying is all these things pointed towards him. The new has come. So trust in the new. He didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled it. Trust in the new. Don't try to just piecemeal this together. What that practically means for you and I today is that Jesus, he calls us to put our entire hope in him, to hand our whole lives over to him, not just one little part, all of us. And if we will do that, he promises to make us new. The sad truth is, and he closes this passage with this, even hearing all this, so often we just want the old. That's the point there, I believe, when he says, no one after drinking old wine desires the new. For he says, the old is good. And Jesus here isn't saying to the Pharisees, you know, y'all got what's best. Just keep it up. You don't need anything else. No, he's saying, you're, 
You're holding on so tightly to the old. You're missing the new. You've entirely missed it. And friends, again, we can do the same thing. Sometimes we hold so desperately to our old life that even understanding the promise of the new, we, we just want the old. And we are like the people of old who even after being delivered out of Egypt and their slavery, as soon as they hit one hardship, what did they say? Well, it was so much better back then. Some of us have left so much behind and then we come into the Christian life and it gets hard and difficult and we deceive ourselves into thinking, well, it was better back then. No, it wasn't. But to have the new means we have to turn from it and put our trust in Jesus. And friends, when we do that, well then we come to the table and we celebrate. <laughs> Which... It all comes together at the table, doesn't it? Jesus takes this, this unleavened bread, this bread that was used at these Passover celebrations, this bread that was a reminder of how God swiftly and quickly delivered his people out of Egypt. There wasn't time to leaven the bread for the bread to rise. They would commemorate that deliverance through the taking of this unleavened bread. We, we commemorate something when we take that bread. We are commemorating the quick Deliverance of the gospel, of Christ's complete and sufficient work done on our behalf, that we might be clothed in what? In his blood, that new covenant. The cup is what? It's the new covenant of his blood that covers us. So that one day we won't stand before God and him say, there's no clothes. That, that we might stand before God and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So that he might say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my peace. Is your trust in Jesus today? Then celebrate that with us. But if your trust isn't in Jesus today, then, then this is a time for you to go before God and to put your trust in him. And if you will, confess Christ as your Lord. If you do believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, and then you will be saved. And then you go beneath that water, and you, you make that public declaration, and then you come to this table with him. But if you've yet to put your trust in Christ, and yet to make that public confession, we would ask that you observe, as we who have come to this table together. And so with that, I, I want to invite our deacons to come forward. Our, our time, our response today is indeed the Lord's